très vite. Salut. Cześć. Hello. Bonjour. Hello. Hello everyone, our Get Real Now podcast is back. I'm Bettina and I'm here with my co-host Joel. And today we are talking about racism and we have invited two amazing guests who are co-hosting a podcast show themselves, which is called Tales from the Plantation. Please welcome Richard and Nezi to our show, who will share with us their experiences about racism in the UK and what that means in the life, particularly of black people. So Nezi, maybe you can start. Thank you so much for joining us and please tell us who you are and what your podcast is about. Hi, thank you so much for having us. Um, who am I? <laughs> um, I'm Leslie. I um, was born and raised in London um, to two parents from the best island in the Caribbean, which is obviously Jamaica. Oh, excellent. Um, and <laughs> and um, so Tales from the Plantation was essentially started by my brother a couple of years ago um, with him and a couple of my friends. And then Richard, um, who was my brother's friend from school, um, joined the podcast as well. Um, and yeah, the rest is history. And I'm sure Richard will introduce himself. Uh, I would love to introduce myself. Why, thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm Richard, also known as Tunde from Tales from the Plantation podcast. Um, yeah, I started off as a fan of the pod. And next thing you know, I've climbed my way through the ranks from newcomer to uh, uh, fan favorite. Uh, I am, I am a, a Nigerian, so born in Nigeria, and I actually moved to London when I was two. So I've been here for for twenty six years now, but I would still say I'm uh, a British Nigerian as opposed to a Nigerian Brit. Wow. Okay, that's super interesting. Joel, maybe um, for the sake of this particular podcast, uh, you can give some more background and then I will too. <laughs> <laughs> All right then. Um, well, hello, I'm Joel. I, um, well, I, I'm, I'm half Jamaican, half English. Um, only been to Jamaica once, actually. Um, recently qualified as a solicitor, but not working as a solicitor anymore. And I love skiing. That's me in a nutshell, really. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. <laughs> I didn't meet uh, Joel at skiing, though, um, but he has not stopped talking about it ever since. Uh, we met online. I'm Bettina. Yeah. Um, like online. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I've, uh, I've studied um, uh, migration and integration in the Mediterranean area and the Middle East. And I'm currently about to finish my master thesis on um, Germany as an immigration society and uh, participation, integration and um, also racial discrimination in that context. Um, and uh, I'm from Germany. Uh, I'm born here. I'm in Germany right now, actually. Uh, but I used to uh, study and work in the UK. And uh, in this podcast, we're obviously focusing on the UK side of things, but I guess I can bring in some, um, maybe can bring in some uh, experience from what's happening in Germany every now and then. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I guess one would say I'm white. Uh, so that's my background. So I will just uh, ask and listen. Yeah, and I'm the so minority here. <laughs> Often, actually, I happen to be the minority, though, in those kind of subjects. I, I choose also in my 
in my studies I'm the only German um, at least so <laughs> um, yeah <laughs> so that's quite interesting uh, how this conversation will unfold so let's keep uh, talking about your podcast Nezzy and Richard um, Tales from the Plantation please uh, tell us about uh, what this is about um, who is your audience and uh, yeah what you're discussing uh, I, I can I can start off I think we we like to focus on the pod on um, mm -hmm. just the 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 black experience. So talking about politics, talking about pop culture. Uh, it started a lot with talking about um, some of our experiences at work, um, but wider what it's like to be black and um, what impacts some of the decisions that our governments and um, even celebrities around us have had um, from our perspective as uh, honestly middle-class black people. Nezzy, any? Yeah, um, oh, I think you summed it up really well. Yeah, so essentially our podcast is focusing on um, experience in, in England. Um, and we do, we do tend to kind of, because from Caribbean or African back, grounds kind of broaden it to the diaspora as well so we talk about things that happen in america being um that i would guess would say would be popular amongst young black people in our in our age group um and as to, um i keep calling him tunde because that's what we call him on the podcast but as richard said um we we do focus a lot on the experience growing up um probably i would say black and being middle class and um being in the in the work environment so in more corporate environments in the uk and kind of what that means um for race and racial issues yeah um actually maybe uh going back on the workplace experience um which is coincidentally also something I'm, I'm looking into in my thesis. Um, uh, Richard, you've started, uh, I think you've started um, a group, a professional group where you're working. Um, is that correct? And can you tell us about that? Uh, I have, yeah. So we, I think we're lucky. Um, so I work, at, I work at Deloitte and um, we have already had a multicultural network for the last 10 years. Um, but in the last 10 months, uh, I started, along with a few other people, uh, a specific black network. Um, because often when we talk about uh, BAME or BME or just general multicultural, non-white cultures, um, what tends to happen is the, the black experience is left out because we're underrepresented even amongst those groups. Um, so that group was set up, first of all, just as an opportunity for us to connect. Um, but as it's grown, it's been an opportunity to kind of encourage, develop each other, um, work out where we are so you feel less like the only, um, as well as actually starting to use our voice, especially in the last month or so, to drive change in the firm and um, make sure that the actions that are taken by the firm to address these challenges facing black colleagues are actually driven by listening to what black colleagues are asking for. And what resources have you had access to? Um, so I'm, I'm in a privileged position of being a manager. So having been there for six years now, there's kind of 
the power that I have just by virtue of knowing the right people and being at a certain level of seniority that means if I raise a challenge it's often taken with relative seriousness when we're talking about actual finances um, again being able to work with our multicultural network is helpful um, because they they're able to print out and provide some of the money there I've got partners who are willing to support and sponsor um, but one of the outcomes that has uh, come from the kind of black action plan uh, Deloitte released last week uh, is the that we're looking to formalize the black network so there should be a little bit more resource available over the next few months and years yeah it's fine i was just say you mentioned um challenges that you faced while being at um well while um um doing this project um at at, at deloitte what challenges um have you um had to deal with the give us um your the the, the most serious one um so I don't I don't think there's anything that is unique to Deloitte. Um, what we what we've had to acknowledge, right, is that by virtue of being a black person, there is just an element of systemic challenges that you have to face. So the the inbuilt, you know what? No, rewinding. Right, the the view that banter is um, or Offensive language can be seen as banter. The fact that um, when challenges or issues are raised where someone feels like they have been unfairly treated because of race due to the lack of uh, systemic support and the lack of infrastructure to properly deal with uh, issues raised around uh, race, there are quite a few examples of people i think it's pretty common where their issues just aren't taken as seriously um as they should be um what kind of um banter for example um so things like touching hair i think (laughs) yes right like that is oh wow that's that's in the workplace? Yeah, that's like, standard. Seriously? Yeah. <laughs> All the time. Like Oh wow. All the time. I, I oh, can't wow. I can't I can't actually count how many times somebody has either touched my hair, tried to ask to touch my hair, or has touched my hair without my permission. I've had people try and yeah, like come so from weird. behind me think, to oh, touch wow. my hair without wow, me so, so without me seeing. And then when I turned around, tried to run away. It's it's very weird behavior. Wow. Well, so so if so, if something like that happens, um, and I, I mean that could be or even is, I guess also even a sexual component to that. Like, is there anyone you can uh, you can go to and uh, at your work and and raise the issue? At my work, um, no, not really. I mean, I think the thing with my job, um, so I work in the NHS. And the NHS, as a culture, has a culture of kind of just get on with it. Um, oh wow! I think I think they're superficially trying to change that by, you know, saying, "Oh, you can come and talk to this person, talk to that person." But 
I mean, really and truly, I think part of the problem is as well, if I went to, de- if I did go and speak to somebody about it, they would probably see me as overreacting. And I've had times before where I've complained about somebody doing something like that, not as in a formal complaint, but I've just said, oh, it's annoying when people do that. And people have kind of, well, why people have essentially reacted by saying, oh, it's just a compliment. They just think your hair is interesting. They just think you're exotic. They just, they're just curious. So oh. it's not but- a big deal. But would something like this happen rather from patients or from colleagues or or like from both? From both. Oh, wow. Yeah, from both. Yeah, and you know, Um, actually probably more so colleagues than patients because... Oh, wow. I think with with patients, there's there's a level of like respect and... I mean, I think so because I'm a doctor, there's a level of respect and a level of kind of like deference there that that people often have with their doctor that they probably wouldn't as much try to touch my hair although i have had patients try to touch my hair it's um it's, it's quite it's quite interesting actually um the touching hair thing because um i've got um co- i've got cousins with afro hair and when we were younger they used to touch my hair and i used to touch their hair i've got straight caucasian hair so it's quite an interesting um quite an interesting one that obviously this isn't in the workplace but we were fascinated we were fascinated by each other's hair but we were young yeah, yeah, it's a very different context. I just thought I just thought I'd mention it. It's just quite it's quite interesting because you know you'd never do, you know doing that in the workplace, bloody. Yeah, and I think it's it's definitely it's interesting as well because like the fact that that still remains the response is actually interesting in itself. Um, because especially what I've seen over the last few months, a lot of what we have brought up and raised isn't new and it's not like this is the first time people will have heard these complaints or issues raised but it's the first time they will have had it heard it raised and taken it with the seriousness that it always should have been dealt with yeah no actually that that would be um something i'm really interested in which is um do you have the feeling, maybe Richard first and Nezi, um, that something has changed within the last few months, um, maybe even before or particularly after what happens happened to George Floyd in the US and the whole movement that came out of that? Absolutely. I think this is... we. One of the positives that has come out of the unfortunate circumstances that we are in at the moment is that we managed to res- we managed to end up in a place where the perfect storm of conditions came together to mean that people had to pay attention so mm. if you think about it the coronavirus meant that people were already aware of the adverse impacts of healthcare for um people from minority backgrounds the lockdown that came down as a result of it meant that people are at home, they're watching TV, they're on social media more. Um, And then for George Floyd's death to happen right in the middle of that storm makes it that much harder to ignore. When the whole world is watching, it's very difficult to brush it under the carpet. For many many white colleagues and non-black colleagues, this will have been the first black death at the hands of police that they would have heard of yeah which is strange when you consider the fact that in america alone there were only 12 days 
in the whole of 2019. Wow. Where, Ameri- where police didn't kill someone. But actually, so maybe saying this from the from the white perspective, um, like it, I, I, what you're saying is completely right. It seems strange that no one has heard about this, but I'm trying to keep my my friends as uh, like diverse, so to speak, as possible, just because um, I. I like to have uh, people from as friends from all over the world where I've been, etc. So I actually in my newsfeed I get a lot of different stuff, and because of that, I um, I saw videos where it was about black people in the U.S. Um, who had been killed by police, just like that, etc. Um, some years ago, when I started to have also maybe more black people or people from other backgrounds in in my Facebook friends group, etc. Um, but before that. I hadn't heard about that either and and well to be fair we are not in the US but still and it's strange and and for me um I can only assume that that the whole this whole kind of social media bubble thing which we are talking about also in other contexts only makes this worse I don't know whether you have any any thoughts on that particular aspect um I think that um so I remember it was probably quite a few years ago, so just before I went to university, so probably about 10, 11, 12 years ago, that um, that Trevor Phillips, who at the time was the head of the Commission for Racial Equality, um, said that we were sleepwalking towards segregation. Because I'd done some research into essentially friendship groups in, in um, the UK and even in areas like London, and it showed that um, white middle-class people especially couldn't, didn't have close friends of another race and I think um, I think part of the problem with white supremacy and racism is that it encourages it encourages black people and people of other ethnicities to group together more for I mean partly because people like things that are familiar to them and that's fine Um, but also because it's a safety thing um, you're kind of protecting yourself from the potential um, racism, potential difficulties that come through interactions with, you know, your with with white people essentially, um, and you tend to to group around that, and then that means that actually things that affect that particular community don't get shared amongst amongst white people because they actually don't have anybody in their life that would talk to them about those things, and because mainstream media is dominated, you know, by essentially middle-class white men it's not on their radar and it's not of importance to them so it's not talked about as it should be and it's not it's not going to be um talked about as widely as it would be within those specific communities so that's why it does take an event like george floyd to actually bring bring things to the forefront and then all these conversations that have been happening within these communities for years are suddenly kind of brought to the attention of you know white people and it's kind of like a surprise to them because they're like, oh, this isn't, this isn't, we haven't talked about this before, but actually we've been talking about it for ages. I think you're completely right. I think, um, I think actually that happens in lots of different ways that with the black and white divide, let's say that's, um, that seems to be a very obvious one, but there are other divisions uh, mm-hmm. on a more social level as well, as you, you said, you know, uh, middle class or, you know, 
um, I guess um, it kind of leads us maybe into the topic of intersectionality in, in some way. And I know uh, Richard has written um, some blog articles about this. Uh, Nezi, um, I can only assume, has maybe also um, had something to do with that topic. Um, if you want to share uh, your insights on that, maybe particularly with regard to what's happening right now with the, let's call it, well, is it called Black Lives Matter movement? I don't even know. I think I'd, I'd like uh, Nezi to take the lead on this. As a as a black woman, I think there's there's a real nuance um, to her experience of of racism in a patriarchal society that is is probably a more valid input as a start point, at least. Thanks, um, thanks, Tinde. That's actually oh, I keep calling you Tinde, Richard. <laughs> I'm never gonna like. I'm never gonna get used to that because it's just that's what I call Richard now. Um, yeah, I think so. I think intersectionality is, is basically about the fact that we all have different things in terms of our race, in terms of our gender, in terms of our sexuality, in terms of our class, in terms of our able-bodied or not able-bodiedness that give us levels of privilege in society and in a society that essentially favours white straight men that having anything that's outside of that puts you at some level of disadvantage within that system. I think that's, I think, I, I hope I would say that's a, a general theory. I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm <clears throat> like a, somebody who's knows a great deal about intersectionality in terms of the theory, but I think I would say I've a lived experience of that in terms of being a black woman, as Richard said. And I think one of the things about um, being black and being a woman is not only are you faced with mm. racism, but you're also faced with sexism. And those two aren't separated, but that there's actually a specific space that black women occupy in terms of how we're seen. So it's not just that we're seen as black people and as women, but that also black womanhood has its own set of stigmas and stereotypes attached to it. Um, so even in terms of... Um, even within the black community, for example, you're not just facing racism, sexism, mainly from wider society, but you might face um, sexism and misogyny within your community in terms of how, even though black men are, you know, have to deal with racism, they are also able to exert their power as men within the community and how actually being inside a white patriarchal system that denies black men a lot of agency, sometimes that causes them to reactively exert the little power that they do have on the women within their community in ways that are negative and then obviously within the wider kind of system um as a black woman having to having to navigate the fact that even within feminist spaces so even within spaces that are supposed to be for women as a black woman you're also um often not represented well in those spaces and you're often asked to kind of push racial issues aside in order to focus on gender issues when actually for me I can't separate my race and my gender the two things that just come together so it's like layers layers and layers of um um non-representation and layers of discrimination that you're facing each time yeah and then I, I think um for example if I was disabled that would be another um a layer of another layer that I would have to that people and I think what it is as well is just like people not 
people not being mm. able to fully appreciate your humanity i think that's i think that's that's what it is i think being black is a level of um in in wider in wider society you're not a our humanity isn't fully appreciated so we're not afforded the same spectrum of emotions and for example not being allowed to be angry having to modify your emotions in order to not be seen as threatening so that's on level of being black and then as a black woman there's a specific stigma with black women being not being allowed to be angry because you get the angry black women stereotype and then I can imagine if I had a disability or if I wasn't straight or there's so many other things that could impact how people see me in the boxes that they would try to put me in um so that's essentially what it is. I don't know if I if I don't know if Tinder agrees that I gave a bit of a it's a bit long winded, but um No, a hundred percent. And what we need to remember is that the rules that we play by in all areas of society today were written by white, straight males who were able bodied, were seen as um were seen as the 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 icons or the leaders, right? We a lot of what we are still working to break down the barriers for isn't new. So, for example, we look at the history that tells us about the challenges that women have had to um, have to be to be seen as equal members of society who were able to participate not only in the education system but then in the workforce and then in the uh, the, the democratic population. We look at the the treatments of uh, poor people and uh, disabled people. So I think a lot of people often forget that uh, socioeconomic backgrounds will be another thing that will impact your ability to succeed, your representation as part of the um, most successful in society. Right? There are so many challenges that people face that when you compound them, it's a multiplier effect as opposed to an additive. So, yeah, so all of the challenges that you face by being one of these things, when you put them together, it's a multiplier effect. It's not like you get, here are the challenges of being um, poor, here are the challenges of being black, here are the challenges of being a woman, here are the challenges of being uh, gay, and it's just, right, we'll just add them up together is a multiply that the more of those groups that you fit in the more difficult it is to find yourself represented to find yourself in a position where you can be seen as close to the ideal which is the white straight cis man yeah i was just gonna say but i think it's also um i agree with everything richard said but i think it's also important to note that i think when sometimes people hear that they they think that you're saying that if you're a black woman, your life has automatically been harder than somebody who is a white man. And that is not that is not what I'm saying. So, for example, I am black and I'm a woman, but I'm also middle class. And I also grew up in a two-parent family. Um, yeah, like, for all intents and purposes, very loving home, went to great schools, didn't struggle to get a good education, was very well supported by my... Yeah, able-bodied, was very well supported by my parents through uni... So my my life isn't automatically better isn't automatically worse than a white working class man who grew up in a you know a council estate on Stoke on Trent and you know had abusive parents, I grew up in care, 
my life isn't automatically better than theirs. But what it does mean is that in terms of structural disadvantage, in terms of in terms of discrimination, that white working class man is not going to be discriminated on, on against on the basis that he that he is a white male. If he is going to be discriminated against, it's probably going to be on the basis that he's from a working class background. And even though he's had he has had things in his life that will make him at more of a disadvantage than me overall, um, in terms of if he's you know growing up within a very poor background with with uh, abusive parents, he's probably not going to have the same chances that I've had to do certain things. But it does mean that the discriminations that I face in society um, are not are because of my race and because of my gender things that I have no control over. Um, so I think I think that's important to note because I, I definitely think for some white people especially what they hear from that is you're saying that every single white person has a better life than a black person just because they're white and that's not what, what we're saying No definitely and I think it's super important that you uh, point that out because um, at the end of the day also I guess what racism was about originally um, in colonial times etc it's about power And I think um, obviously it, there's so many different layers to it, but um, I guess it can still be used uh, very well to divide people, um, to not unite against um, a common enemy, so to speak. Um, and I guess if, as you were saying, like someone, a white male uh, who has um, a certain kind of uh, socioeconomic background might have very similar problems to 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 a black uh, woman with that same kind of background, etc. And they could technically and it only would make sense to unite against what their their problem in society is but i guess um racism is used as a dividing tool to not let them see maybe their their common um or their their how do you say their their shared um problems interests etc i don't know whether you agree with that or not i i think it's more about the framing that the that is often uh portrayed by those who are in power so like we forget that the media on mass is run by people who are both privately and oxbridge educated so even the the newspapers in this country that are seen as the the, the common people's papers or the tabloids are still run by extremely privileged usually white men I mean, I believe that most of the most of the print media uh, in this country is actually run by three three companies, three publishing houses. So, as much as we want to talk about um, variety and choice, we're realistically still getting it from the same sources. Um, but the the key is that a lot of the power structures. Um, require the those in power to convince those out of power that we are each the reason why the other isn't successful so poor people uh, are vilified when the question comes about why we can't do more to help uh, the poorest in our society an example being free school meals which marcus rashford had to spend the better part of a month um, funding himself and then campaigning for the government to pay for free school uh, free meals for children 
uh, when we look at um, reasons to keep working class white people on side of those same people who I've just demonstrated aren't ready to support them, the boogeyman, cha the boogeyman then changes from poor people who are looking for welfare to immigrants and people from non-white backgrounds, right? As we saw in the EU um, Brexit referendum, the, the boogeyman throughout all of that was about how, look, you would be better off if not for the fact that uh, this, this uh, immigrant who is a working class man just like you or a working class family just like yours, but the benefits that we would have spent money on you are clearly going to them. When it's not that, Black Lives Matter. I mean, we would be more than happy to do more to to change some of the the policies and structures that are holding back so many of our less well-off people. But the black people are out here and they're asking for things in the wrong way, so we clearly can't do anything. Yeah, that's the framing. And and it's it's just that yeah it's the constant yeah. framing of it's everyone's fault except those in power no exactly i mean brexit is a prime example of that i mean joel and i have discussed this endlessly actually i think that is a very good example because um i had been um at a talk um by the pro-european conservative group um which does exist apparently and i asked them about all those that was even before brexit all those failures uh within the uk's political system and infrastructure etc etc and at first he didn't want to admit to it and then in the end he did and and like the one person i was talking to um who was an mep at the time and and he was like yeah actually you're right yeah we because i said like, why are you talking about democracy um when you have your voting system in the UK, which isn't even half as representative as the EU voting system. <laughs> um, and and I think that's that's kind of underlining what Richard said there about power. There are certain structures in place, um, and of obviously the the people who are benefiting from that don't want to don't want to give in. But I my let's say hope is that there is a younger generation like our generation building which does have a bit more ide idealism maybe to 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 make the choice and say yeah actually we need to give up some of our uh privilege benefits etc because it is not right but maybe i'm too too naive and idealistic there myself i don't know what do do you have any kind of um do you feel any difference maybe also between generations on that note um not really if i'm honest um i think i think there's this particular so I think younger generations are always more... I think the research shows that people tend to become more conservative as they get older. Uh, don't quote me yeah. on that, but no, I think that's no, no, I read. Uh, yeah. No, no, it's true. I, well, at least um, for some countries I've read that, yeah. Yeah, so I just feel like um, I don't take people in my age group as a marker of of kind of societal progress in the sense that inevitably some of the same people who are probably marching with Martin Luther King have may well have voted for Donald Trump in the last election. Do you know what I mean? Like it's not Yeah. It it's I, I feel I I I I I don't know, I don't want to sound bad, but I do often feel like um 
being a bit of a left winger and progressive is like a phase that white people go through when they're in their like 20s early 30s and as they get older they unfortunately seem to revert back to form um and so i i'm i i do think though that there is a greater understanding of um race and racism and an openness amongst um this generation of young people because of the internet that we probably haven't seen in previous generations i don't know if it's as widespread enough to for me to believe that there's going to be some like mass revolution or change in the next 20 30 40 50 years but i do definitely think there is a there is a part there is a sector of society that how that will permanently change for the better um because of the access of information and even because of what's happened in this moment with black lives matter um i don't know if it will i don't maybe i'm I'm a cynic i don't think it will there will be i doubt that there will be long-term systemic changes in the next how many years but i do think any progress is progress that we can be happy with i'd rather some progress than none at all so i think we have to probably be realistic but have the optimism that every you know kind of you're like chipping away at something and anytime you can chip away a little bit even if it's not to the extent that you want it to then it's then it's you're still doing something and we should still just keep trying to do something no matter how big or how small it is i don't know if i think i think tunde's probably a bit more optimistic than i am (laughs) oh you know it's just interesting what you're saying about the um about how the um media is controlled by or owned by um, a specific, you know a small select group. Just wondering, um, you know, I just want to have both your comments on. Um, it goes back to Brexit. I'm not allowed to talk about it, but I'm going to. Um, the comments on um, how areas that were very diverse um, ended up voting Remain, typically, and areas which had very little diversity. You know, typically, you know, older white areas. Um, were mainly Brexit, and I want to. I want to. I was wanting to pick up on your point about how um, the papers were saying, "Oh, it's the, the immigrants are coming," kind of thing. I just want your comments on that, if that made any sense at all. Yeah. The areas that had more diversity voted to remain. The areas that had le- had a lot less diversity um, voted to leave. And I think it's because the papers were saying, "Look, they're coming," kind of thing. No. My, my my statement was just really simple <laughs> a, a boogeyman is far more effective when you can't see it so yeah. the, the idea of uh, immigrants coming to take your jobs is a lot easier to sell <laughs> like, when you are yeah. not surrounded by the very people who are apparently coming in as an invading horde I think it can work both I think it can work both ways though um, I, do, I definitely think overall actually that i agree with with richard that part of the reason um why those so i was actually in stoke-on-trent um during the brexit kind of vote and it was really interesting Mm. because it's a very non-diverse area there's a lot of deprivation um it's a place where like kind of like bmp and edl have thrived in those areas um, and they had a bit of immigration. So, from, so there were a few Eastern Europeans that were starting to come into the into the area, um, and it was definitely a sense of people fear what they don't understand, um, and people fear what 
they don't have a lot of interaction with. Mm. However, there are some areas of South London, for example, that like an area like Eltham or like Woolwich or places like Bermondsey where actually, despite the diversity in the surrounding areas, that has actually increased in some in some ways increased for some for some people for some white white working class backgrounds the intensity of their xenophobia and their racial hatred yeah because of the sheer numbers of non-white immigrant ethnic people that they've seen in the area that it's actually made it worse instead of it making it more like so i think i don't know i, I don't know it's quite i think it's quite a complex thing i do think overall for, for a lot of people it does work that when they know people yeah. when they interact with people from different backgrounds it makes them more open-minded but then I do think that I think you almost have a you have a choice to make in that moment as to whether you're going to open yourself up or close yourself up, up, off further. And some people, especially, I think. So I think especially, you know, I don't like to give excuses for like white working class racism because I'm just like you're racist because you want to be racist. But at the same time, I do think sometimes um, when when people um so I heard someone call it like scarcity, um, scarcity politics. When people are, um, you know, they're they're in more deprived areas, they have less resources. It's harder for them to open up to an outsider that might potentially be coming for those yes. resources because they just don't have the resources to share as much. Um, and that's not to say that white working <laughs> yeah. class people are actually more racist than white middle class people because they're not. But I think I think <laughs> I I think that there's there's at least um, with white middle class people the racism is in a different way and I think it's it's not trendy it's not cool to be anti-remain in a lot of kind of white middle class liberal environments anyway but also you don't have that in the back of your mind that so and so is coming for your highly skilled very middle class job anyway in fact the person who's yeah. coming from Eastern Europe is likely the person who's the builder who might be doing your house and that's actually really good because actually so-and-so from Poland works really hard on my house so I don't really mind if there's Poland but then if you're somebody who's actually a builder and then there's people from Poland coming who are doing the work as well as you sometimes even better for less money that is then a source of tension mm. I, I think that's you're raising a very good point there um, on the other hand I'm not entirely sure about the UK um, situation and I think Joel might be knowing more about that but in Germany for instance um, this is when this is raised by politicians um, as a populist claim that um, someone is coming for someone's job, it is most uh, like in all cases basically a lie because those jobs are don't have enough um, demand anyway, and particularly in Germany, not by by German nationals because they often say they're not paid well enough, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, or I don't want to do that kind of job, so they're not even going for the jobs even when they are there, and therefore um, they need yeah. people to to do those those jobs. And mostly they are immigrants, and I don't oh, even want to get yeah, a hundred percent. Well, we're we're seeing that we're we're seeing that with fruit picking. I keep asking. Uh, I, I'm I'm always on Twitter asking. It's like, okay, so you've won your fruit picking job back. Are you going to do it? And now we have and now they're flying in people to do these jobs. So it's just um, it just it, what I say. What I usually say is um, it was used. You know, the whole jobs thing was used as a guise. You know, the whole boogeyman thing. They're coming over. Um, the real reason was just to get rid of people. Yeah. Generally. So here's 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 my. Here's my thinking on this, though, right? Um, I really enjoyed the the German model because Germany are an example for 
while they're not perfect, but they are an example to other European nations when it comes to learning and embracing diversity. So if you take, for example, the difference between British history and German history, right? In Germany, they are very clear about where they stand from a historical, moral, ethical standpoint on the effects and decisions of someone like Hitler, right? They learned from that, and as a result, they banned the Nazi party. UK, if we look at the exact same time period, we are still having a conversation now about whether or not Winston Churchill was a flawed leader, right? And they are unable to recognise yeah. that Winston Churchill and Adolf Hitler just happened to have different flavours of fascism. Neither of them were particularly um, favourable towards migrants, immigrants, people who are non-white and had awful ways of dealing with it. Hitler, with the Holocaust and his treatment of non-white Aryan um, Germans, and Churchill, with his allow uh, his support of apartheid, his allowance for the famine in India, uh, was it India? I think it was India. I think it was India or Bangladesh, maybe. Uh, yeah, there was there was a Southeast Asian famine that he basically approved and sponsored. Um, but we don't have that discussion. As a result, when you fast forward to 2020, what you see is uh, Germany, who has learnt of the dangers of, of mass xenophobia and populism, have actually been able to take their migrant and refugee community and actually get to a point where I think I saw a stat that said 85% of refugees who have come to take refuge in Germany are in gainful employment. 10% of those that aren't are looking for gainful employment and only 5% are not currently in work. Right? Compare that to the approach that the UK has taken. And the reasons being that because they continue to whitewash and we continue to allow those in power to control the narrative, like we are, we continue to be in a place where we have taken the same type of messaging that was popular in World War II, where we said the reason why you are not getting your job, the reason why you are not better off is because the Jews are coming to take your jobs. Here we have the Europeans are coming to take your jobs. Uh, the left are coming to try to turn everything into a welfare state. Try and silence you and all that. Exactly. They, they take every valid criticism of their inaction and turn it into an excuse that can be blamed on another suffering, yeah, struggling party. That's um, that's really interesting because I suppose that's why you get so many on the you know on the typical the typical right con you know. Um, often um, referring back to the war and I'm wondering it's because it's never been nothing's ever been addressed lots of people still seem to be well lots of people are still in that kind of mindset us versus them like we had that recent comment from um, we had that recent comment from Andrew Neil that sparked quite a lot of controversy on social media about um, um, what's bad about the Commonwealth history and it, it exploded because it looked, because no one is talking about the history of why the Commonwealth exists, why you know what happened. So it's lots. It's just not being addressed in the UK. 
basically the this narrative of the UK being well the winner of the war as they were <laughs> yeah. together with the allies um and even yeah, though the russians yeah, were there and, first and um and some and <laughs> yeah but let's not get into detail but but um The, uh, however, the British managed to get the bring the Americans in because I think Churchill was half American as well, right? But anyway, I don't want to go into into that kind of detail now. But but the thing is that the narrative um, is very strong in in Germany in particular as well, and and obviously it is true. And 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 from the German perspective, it is like um, well, the the Allies, the they have been the, the 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 saviors in some to some extent of germany so to speak that's kind of how it is framed in in well at least in some circles you know there are different kind of um uh, perspectives of that same story but um when i came to the uk i also was more like yeah it's you know i'm finally in a good country <laughs> like that that was kind of my perspective i'm finally like in a country uh which does have moral high ground on at least the second world war thing you know and i didn't really actually know much more about this and then i was talking to someone at a house party a british guy and um and i said uh no and he and he said oh you're from germany wow econo economically that's so great etc etc and i was like yeah well but there's still a lot going wrong in germany and and that's something to kind of um, disappoint Richard a little bit in but there is still a lot wrong in Germany but roughly your point still is valid um, that they have learned but the question is how long that holds up but anyway um, that then I was like yeah but you know the UK is so much better than Germany they've you know they've ended the holocaust and everything you know and they 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 won the war and and, and made everything better also in Germany and then he goes like yeah well but we had the empire you know and the colonialism and everything that's connected to that so you know and I was like yeah no I don't really know actually um, <laughs> it's never been really a topic um, and he's like yeah unfortunately has never been really a topic in the UK either and as the more I learned about this actually from friends and people I met in the UK Uh, who are often coming from former Commonwealth countries, only then I understood and realized because my image before that was, oh, wow, look at how diverse and amazing the UK is. Everyone from all those different countries is living there together. And, you know, that that was my perspective before I came and learned more. Um, and I do think it's baffling that... <laughs> Yeah. the conversation hasn't even really started for for people in schools or anything like I, I, that i really cannot understand and i can definitely not say that everything which regard to um talking about what historically happened goes well in german schools but at least it is mentioned and i don't know is is it even mentioned in the uk right now what what colonialism was and what it really was slavery and all that bullshit like and what that means for today so i find i find it really really funny because um in british people english people in particular and i think also um probably it's important to separate um i think the uk is made up of like ireland england scotland well northern ireland england scotland wales um and i think there's actually like quite a lot of difference in the histories like definitely scotland was involved in the slave trade 100 and But, and so with the Irish, but there's a particular thing about the English and their denial of their involvement in in what is essentially a 400 year history of 
of raping, pillaging and and child trafficking because I think someone put a post on Facebook um not Facebook sorry I'm not even on Facebook on Instagram um which said the language that we use about slavery changes how we see it um and if we call you know when you talk about the holocaust people are very clear in understanding the extent what most people apart from a few weird holocaust deniers are very clear in understanding the extent of how evil it was and how devastating it was to that community and i think when we talk about slavery we've kind of the word slavery has almost inoculated what actually happened and what actually happened was mass rape um sex trafficking child sexual abuse because a lot of slaves were underage and were often being raped by the slave masters that were well grown adults um forced incest uh paedophilia these are all things masking that these are all things that happened this is this is the institution of slavery so to reduce it to something that is just um even when we're talking about taking down statues is just like a little bit of a stain on someone's character um i, I think if we said actually no this person was a paedophile sympathizer this person was a child um sex slave trafficker that that makes a difference to how we see see slavery and see empire and see colonialism um or even concentration camps understanding that concentration camps were first started by the british and that they used them in africa um like those things are uh, in fact was it the british or was it the belgian i can't remember but they were used in africa by the british um and i think um there's a just a willful it's not a, an ignorance so to me ignorance is almost like um they don't know because they haven't come across it yet but there's a willful and intentional denial of british history by especially by english people um and a willful a willful not telling of it to their children um in order mm. to preserve their self image um and it's almost like a, it's just like a weird mental state it's like you don't want to face the truth about yourself yes so you know even with people who who've done when you see sometimes people who've done atrocities like criminals sometimes they they don't even admit to themselves that they've done the crime and that's essentially what happens in England in our school system in our media and everything it's quite interesting because we also get um, a lot of um, people who don't like to face you know what happened during the empire they go oh well the uh, the british um, ended um slavery blah 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 but then uh, immediately after that came the indentured workers who were subject to similar um, conditions. And that's another, just another thing that um, the English in particular don't like to talk about. I think, I think there's a lot that they just don't like yeah. to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Honestly, honestly, Bettina, in your months and years in England, you'd know more about English history than English children. Like, people who were born, bred, and have never left the country. And that is because I think it is a core part of the yeah. the power structures to continue to paint everything throughout English history as a positive. Like, if you, if you think about the way history is taught in the country, mm. when things are happening to Britain, it is always described in the most violent of terms. So it was a Norman invasion. You had William the Conqueror, right? It wasn't a case of a Norman exploration. Yeah. Or William the uh, Explorer, William the Discoverer. 
why isn't it said that William discovered England? Mm. Right? And yet, when we look at the histories of America, of Africa, all of these people, some, uh, the, the continent, the subcontinent of Asia, were all of them were just explorations and discoveries by bold adventurers going out to share the great culture of yeah. Britain, which makes no sense given the fact that just last term, miss, you were teaching me that the actual culture of Britain isn't British, but it is French mixed with a bit of Nordic with a little bit of Roman. So at which point, at which point do we say that this great British culture is being spread? No, I mean, a hundred percent. Like, I literally just um, finished uh, watching a six-part series in, on German national TV, which is called the, the Europe Saga. And actually, their host, however, is Christopher Clark, who is a historian from Cambridge. But originally, he is from Australia, actually. Um, and, and he kind of really paints the, the picture of... Um, of Europe really um, as a continent and as a political um, unit and uh, first of, he literally starts right at the beginning and points out that first of all most well not most but like people coming to Europe were coming from Africa like from 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 the land masses at the time you know which obviously like I mean everyone should know that but it seems like no one thinks about that or wants to think about that and then actually since then since that very first time when Europeans actually are former Africans since then immigration has been the history of Europe like immigration is is what Europe is and and yeah. as you just <laughs> yeah. pointed out I mean what is even British like the French the the, the Norwegian the Vikings the whatever the Romans um, and and uh I think this this underlines that the story, the history, is written by the winners. I think that's that's what they say, um, and and I think uh, and I think well, history definitely has to be rewritten, or rather, not rewritten, but like it has to be written as it actually was, and and there are enough, there is enough evidence um, of uh, what was happening, which is not um, been told um, in the in the stories and. Um, which we also teach children and uh, obviously this goes even even far more back than than colonialism and everything but then also when we talk about it totally with Nezi like I didn't really think about it but slavery is definitely an, an understatement and a euphemism for what, what has happened and it, I'm really sad that a documentary I think it doesn't exist in English but um, they also point out how European wealth is um based on slavery and and well or rather you know human uh trafficking and and all the atrocities that come with that um and and killing people millions of people with that and and that's literally where our wealth is coming from originally and so i i think it makes only sense to to then think further what that actually means also politically i don't know but what is your take yeah Nezi. um i was gonna say just just to take it back to um, kind of like Black Lives Matter and what's been happening recently. I think that part of the reason this conversation is so difficult is because there is a cultural 
just a cultural inability to be straightforward um and face the truth in in terms of a lot of things and I don't think it's just about race in England I think class is another thing I think um the mm. class system in Britain is extremely entrenched and there's an inability for us to face how much it affects people's day-to-day lives in terms of the class system and how that that limits people's um ability to excel and like realize their full potential in this country um i just think there's a general culture of um denial um and of a kind of fear of of what will happen if we unearth things um and i think that means that when we have a conversation um even when we look at you know the recent events in bristol with the statue being you know colston statue's been been taken down and then recently the statue of <clears throat> the um activist jen reed been put, put up in its place and then that been taken down again there was so much um when i was looking at the responses it was there was such a disproportionate anger and i think part of the anger comes from um kind of like you know like if you grow up feeling like your parents your parents are really great people like when you're a kid you kind of almost think unless you grow up in a a terrible environment or a fairly bad environment up until a certain age you think your parents are pretty much infallible until you get to like maybe your late kind of you know when you start getting to your early teens or mm. just a bit younger than that you start being able to see right from wrong a bit more and you can see that your parents aren't perfect people but when you're like three four five six seven you kind of just think your parents are you have an image of your parents. They're your heroes, right? And then when something happens, like say, for example, somebody, you know, is growing up in a, this perfect family and then they find out that their dad's had an affair or been having an affair for 10 years or their mom's had an affair. It's, I don't know, you know, it's always dad's. Um, it kind of shatters their image of this person that they thought was... And I feel like with British people, it's almost like a lot of their identity is rooted in they feel the need to defend you know mm. english being english and englishness as this identity that's built on it's such a key part of their identity and and as people and that they it has to be defended so anytime someone comes and says hey actually this is the truth about what it actually means to be english it's like a existential crisis for them like they actually mm. can't handle it that's the first thing and then also i think in order for them to recognize what um what has happened it, it also mean that they'd have to they'd have to face some personal responsibility from the what from how they benefit from it and then do things to address that which would mean them losing some of their privilege and in their selfishness they don't want to do that so in order for them to maintain the power and privilege they have they have to deny their history because if they are truthful about their history they will realize that they owe a tremendous amount especially to people um you know in asia and africa people who are descended from those people there's a tremendous amount owed to those countries and to us as people from what was taken from us. Um, and I think in order to uh, to recognise your history and to be truthful about it, you'd have to you'd have to you'd have to be honest about that, and that's going to be difficult for people. That kind of reminds me of um, uh, Richard's uh, video um, on about the, um, the 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 friend who was very um, yeah the white guilt the guy that was very um, you know very like shocked and felt that he owed so much. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Richard, would you like to introduce that video or discuss that video? 
yeah, so White Guilt is a is a short film that I I um, co. I was going to say co-starred. That feels so much more grand than it was. It's a very short film. Uh, yeah, so White Guilt was a, a satirical piece, um, kind of focusing on just what happens when um, I think when when white people are kind of confronted with a situation where they may come across as racist, and I think that great fear of people, regardless of what their um, their beliefs and politics are that fear of being called racist often drives even the most supportive ally to a point of uh, uh, cartoonish uh, like guilt and shame where they're ready to tear down the world and scream from the scream from the mountain tops in order to change and 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 atone for their sins of being white and not yeah. having done more to stop slavery 400 years ago. Yeah, well, no, it, I think it was a very powerful short film with many different layers. Um, and uh, I was wondering, though, because for me, there were, were two main parts of this, because, well, basically the film is about the white guy who feels uh, guilty and then because he thinks someone could think he has made a racist comment and then uh, totally freaks out and basically holds the the black person up at night, his friend, um, to to talk about this. And I was thinking, first of all, that's such egotistic behavior. Um, and I guess that's that's part of what what white guilt is or leads to as the essence at the essence of it. Or I, I don't know, Richard, what, what would you say or Nezi? Um, yeah, I think it's always interesting because guilt in itself, right, is quite a it's it's quite a self centered um, emotion, mm. and I don't mean this in a negative way, but the the guilt you feel it's very rare that you feel guilt on behalf of someone else. Right, it can only be because at this point you put yourself in that situation and you're talking you are considering how you feel about it totally and that has that has been a big part of the response for many people when it comes to the current scenario and situation around um around black lives um because the the response was i i just can't believe I never saw it. I feel terrible. I feel so embarrassed that I never knew that you were going through such tough stuff. And in that moment, you take the focus away from the person who is actually the victim of the situation and reframe yourself in that center. To be, oh, I just feel so bad. I wish I could do more. Why? And and I think we've spoken about this on a few podcasts that that importance as allies of actually taking yourself out from the center, not making it about yourself. You can go off and learn. You can take the guilt that you feel, but you need to shift it towards empathy and understanding of what the victim is going through. So so it's a, it's a subtle mm. difference. 
but guilt versus empathy is is a, a huge huge uh hugely important yeah no thank you um just a nice little uh you know a nice little simple um maybe a positive question i don't know um if you had if you had the power um if you had the power how would you um how would you put us how would you put a stop to, to stop to racism just a very simple <laughs> wrapping up just a nice a nice you know if you had the power <laughs> if you had the power like if i you know make it make it realistic if i if i well actually actually yeah if you had the power what would you do i okay um if i had the power to end racism um i would reset the uh financial systems that um like from the very beginning in a way that reduces the incentive for money interesting one interesting one that's cool Nessie, mm. did you have enough time in like 30 seconds to think about the end of racism i i i feel like i can barely even answer this question um i think that if i wanted to stop so I will I will change the word from racism to white supremacy if that if that's okay because I feel like that yeah 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 that um more clearly describes what I think I mean what as, as, if I if I if I say I have power is it like any kind of power including a fantastical magical power so something supernatural okay realistically that makes it more difficult there's so many I think you'd have to do multiple things but I think if I was going to do it, I think it's mindset. Um, I think it's mindset that that changes everything. I think I would probably magically... Um, I would probably magically wipe clean everyone's mind of the past 400, 500, 600, 700, 800,000 years of history. And then we'd have to restart again in terms of relearning how people are. And I think even in that, I think even in that situation, probably people would 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 discover racism again. But it might not be, it might not be white supremacy. It might even be the other way around. I don't know how it would end up. But um, I, I would, I would, um, I'd probably do that because I think I think that's where it all resides, isn't it, in the mind. As in, it's in power structures, but it starts. The, the reason why those power structures exist is because, do you know, the mindset and that that creates the power structures. So they're both. You're, you're both. Both your ideas seem to like kind of relate. To, you know, both like kind of like starting again. If you think so, that's quite interesting. Yeah, financial system and you know, what, starting again with that, and then starting again with like a mindset or wiping it, wiping the history. So yeah, it's quite a cool little consensus. Quite a cool little link there. Well, I think, yeah, thank you very much for coming up with this uh, like that. <laughs> I didn't know of Joel's question, but thank you so much for answering any at any way. And I think... <laughs> I thought they were brilliant answers. Uh, no, definitely. And I think it really summarizes the essence of racism, which is power and, and money for that matter on the one hand. And, and um, yeah, mindsets and... and and what that what that means yeah actually well maybe on a very um if if i may on a very final note there is a um 
documentary by Steven Spielberg, which I think also has six parts, uh, six episodes, and it's called Why We Hate. And um, it is quite tough, but it is very, very interesting. Um, I think it's about, um, well, why we uh, as human beings hate and how we uh, start, how and why we start dehumanizing other human beings. Um, and so it is a lot about genocides and, and that kind of stuff as well. Racism, lots of different um, heavy topics, which kind of go in that mindset direction um, of what Nezi was talking about and uh, I can definitely recommend to everyone watching that and uh, it does end on, on the positive note that we do have a choice though um, as human beings at the end of the day and um, so maybe on, on, on that very last note I would like to um, quote um, Maya Angelou said uh, Do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. So I think let's all strive to know better and then do better. And uh, thank you so much for helping us tonight in knowing better, uh, Nezi and Richard. And hope we'll be back again soon. Thank you very much.